hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another year of the Daily Friend Show. I hope you all had a wonderful end of year, new year, and we will be getting into the news of today. I am Nicholas Lorimer. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the new Mkwanto Sizwe party, the Taiwan elections, which were held very recently, a little bit about where the American presidential race is sitting at, and if we have time at the end, we're going to talk about the Red Sea Pirates. Let us begin today by introducing our guests. We have uh, Chris Hutton. Chris, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. Herman, compliments. If we're still allowed to say that, I don't know if we'll be kicked off just for that. Looking forward to what this year has in store for us, good or bad. It's going to be an interesting year. Indeed, it's going to be an extremely eventful year politically with lots of elections going on all around the world in very countries. Of course, uh, we've got South African elections, which are probably going to be in May, we think. Um, but there are also going to be elections in India and the United States. I'm also joined today by Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, I, I must say, it is. Um, it surely is an interesting time to be in our line of work and trying to figure out what's going on. Because <laughs> at this stage, I mean, if anyone has any ideas, I'm I'm completely open to them. Yeah, no, it's going to be a little bit of a crazy year, I think. So expect uh, the volume of noise in media, on social media, um, just everywhere to be rather large. But let's start off with the, the last bit of noise I think we got in South African politics last year, which was on the 16th of December. A new political party was launched called the Mkonto Sizwe Party. Uh, that party is kind of interesting in that it is essentially a political party which puts on all of its advertising material and at the sort of center of it, uh, Jacob Zuma, who is very loudly and clearly not a member of the party. He still says he is going to remain a member of the ANC unless they kick him out. So that's a little bit weird. But um, my initial thoughts on seeing this political party was that while Zuma certainly has a name and he does have some uh, strong support still in the country in some areas, it's pretty limited. The guy's old. He's pretty unpopular with the vast majority of South Africans. But uh, and, and I thought that outside of KZN in particular, his party really isn't going to do that well. I'm starting to maybe a little bit doubt myself, however, though, because I've seen, um, firstly, that they seem to be relatively organized in their campaigning, at least on the sort of first glance, compared to a lot of newer, other new parties. Uh, they also clearly have some sort of idea of how to build like a campaign website and stuff. I was actually looking at the website today. It's very similar in a lot of ways to the EFF's uh, website, which I think is an interesting angle of this whole thing. They've got a membership oath declaration, which you can take online. Uh, if you give them 10 Rand, you can become a member. And you say, and I'll, I'll read some of this because it's got quite striking language. I solemnly declare that I will abide by the aims, objectives, and radical policies of Mkonto Sizwe as set out in the Constitution of MK. I voluntarily join the MK without any motive of personal gain or material benefit, and understand that I'm not entitled to any positions or deployment. Um, it goes on to talk about uh, that they will defend the proud and militant legacies of fallen heroines and heroes to work towards a South Africa that belongs to all who live in it, defend the African revolutionary tradition against all forms of, of tendencies that promote hatred, division, underdevelopment, corruption, and social discords. Uh, and they also talk about defending what they call uh, the cardinal pillars of their political program, um, which is the exact same language that the EFF uses. They talk about their seven non-negotiable cardinal Pillars, uh, and they also, um, Contest Sizwe talks about that. Um, so while my, 
they they also that when the party was launched their leader said that uh, the party had sort of come out of nowhere because quote due to the toxic atmosphere caused by our captured media judiciary and other arms of the state it was necessary to conduct these discussions underground and we will be sharing more details with the nation uh they also weirdly are retweeting all sorts of strange things from their social media accounts including a picture which has the EFF on one side and Mkonto Sizwe on the other and it says the youth will be captured by EFF and Mkonto Sizwe will bring the elders. Um, kind of an odd way to campaign for your political party but anyway. Uh, so my, as I said, my initial thoughts are that this party is a little bit maybe overhyped but I do think in politics there can be a sort of a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes which is a party can be overhyped initially, but that hype actually generates the buzz it needs to get somewhere in the electorate. And uh, you get this kind of thing from uh, the SABC had an article today saying, ANC apprehensive about MK party's impact ahead of elections. And that's according to an analyst they asked. I don't know. Um, Herman, let me start with you. Do you think the MK party is going to be particularly important? What do you make? Well, firstly, I... I... I sort of dropped my very solemn oath-like hand when you said we anyone signing up to the party can't can't be expecting positions or, or, or cater benefits. In which case, I just thought, well, I'm not signing up. Um, so I mean, I, I'll have to cope with that disappointment. So it's my my initial thought, somewhat like like yours, was, oh well, there's another there's another gimmick, there's another spiel. Um, but I'm sort of withholding judgment until the 3rd and the 4th of February. That's the next registration weekend where um, you'll see the next step of the party is showing what their logistical machinery can do. Um, if MK manages to register some voters, then... I'd be impressed, I'd be surprised, but I'd also have to come to the conclusion that it is a legitimate political party. It wants to gain support, it wants to win votes, and it wants to send a delegation to Parliament. However, I think that is unlikely. Um, the, the, what strikes me about this is you shouldn't see this without Zuma. Uh, they don't, certainly don't see themselves without Zuma. And this is a man who has perfected the Stalingrad strategy, not just legally, but also politically. He has managed to survive by strategically making himself uh, both aggressor and victim. To my mind, I think this is part of that strategy. This seems to me uh, to be a preemptive poisoning of any debate about Zuma's future in the ANC. If they now take action against him or he is prosecuted, he builds up this bank of, um, perhaps not overwhelming, but certainly not insubstantial, public support where he can further this, this argument, this narrative of political martyrdom. And we've seen this develop over the last few years where Zuma has become, you know, he was the guy who wanted to take aim at white monopoly capital and really roll out the 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 populist plan for south africa's poor black poor, poor black population um and this seems to me to form part of that 
narrative that he is trying to craft in terms of a, a defense of his reputation. The ANC or whatever, the state can't take action against him because he is now building himself up to be yet another political martyr or another opportunity at being a political martyr, but this time electorally. If the ANC takes action against him, it'll be, ah, it, it was because they didn't want to listen to me and I was speaking on behalf of the black poor people of South Africa. Um, so it, it, to me, it, it is a bit Stalingrad strategy, just you know, keeping your opponents guessing. And I think it was the the yeah it was the the military strategist William Boyd, um, American guy who talked about interrupting your opponent's OODA loop, O O D A, because in military warfare, especially as a fighter pilot as Boyd was, you observe, you orientate, you decide, and you act. That is the order in which you, as a fighter pilot, dis- you know that's what determines what happens next. And Boyd made this argument that strategically and tactically, you always want to interrupt your opponent's OODA loop. If they've observed, make them observe again. If they've orientated themselves, make them orientate and observe again. If they've decided, make them OOD again. If they've act- it's this idea of never allow your opponent to fulfill their OODA loop. And I think this is textbook political OODA loop interrupting from Zuma. Um, he is doing the unexpected in a way, and he is stirring just enough quat to um, keep his opponents off kilter. And let's be completely honest, Sir Ramaphosa has never been a great political strategist. He isn't surrounded by great political strategists. Um, and Zuma, I think, is quite impressive as a strategist, if nothing else. So this does seem to me uh, opportunist, ruthless, slightly brilliant, pseudo-political, pseudo-legal, just to keep the Zuma train chugging along and making sure he is defended by being as offensive as possible. So, Chris, one of the things I think that's quite interesting about this party, and uh, it, it, I think I think Herman is right, that you know we, we are actually going to have to see some evidence of whether they can, you know, rather than just because, I, I, well, we'll say that most of their campaign events so far have been motorcades, which are very noisy, and visible, not really like that impactful at the end of the day. Um, they are competing very similarly for the same space as the EFF, and there's obviously been a lot of friendship sort of building between those two parties. I wonder whether this might sort of backfire on that that sort of ideological block and end up just dissecting the sort of radical, angry vote. Um, that does exist in South Africa. It's not a huge portion of the electorate, but it is enough of the electorate to give the EFF their sort of ten percent. Um, this may end up taking from the EFF as well. I don't. I don't know. What do you think, Chris? If the charter said, "I solemnly swear I'm up to no good," then I would probably also register. Just uh, putting it out there. If any of those party managers want to get my vote, but in all seriousness. What we see in our polling is the, the how Zuma is such a polarizing figure. So a lot of South Africans really like him, but at the same time, many despise him. So maybe trying to play on that element just, of... Just just to be clear on that point, way more dislike him than like him. Yeah. Yeah, compared to other political leaders, he is at least in the public psyche. Um, so whether that's whether you like him or not, he's in the South African psyche, if there, such a thing could be quantified. So maybe he's trying to play into that where 
he's going to be in the conversation regardless. And whatever the ANC needs to get maybe near that 50%, okay, then we'll give him whatever he wants now, a really quiet retirement, all that kind of thing. On the other hand, as you mentioned with the EFF, where they could play some sort of kingmaker role. Um, I know a lot of polling has them around 11, 13%, maybe maybe under polling them slightly, um, just given how well they have done for a young party and also just that sort of sense of frustration that there is, that the party could also represent a, a vote. It displays your frustration with the ANC. It's not necessarily that you're voting for the EFF, but you're not going to vote for another party to display your frustrations with the ANC. You're going to vote for the EFF. Could the EFF then combine with the MK party and be the sort of protest vote, quote unquote? So I think there could be an element of that as well. All in all, I find it quite um, gratifying because it's yet another thing for the NEC of the ANC to try and deal with in whatever way. Um, so for someone like uh, Fakile Ambalula, the Secretary General, who's done such a sterling job in every single portfolio in which he's been, this is now yet another thing that he has to get on top of, along with the basic campaign work, the machinery before elections, that is the much vaunted ANC machinery is very good before elections. This is another thing on top of the ANC shoulders that it has to deal with and does that over time just chip away slowly but surely. Um, I don't think it's a, it's the one thing that leads to the ANC getting, you know, 40%, for example, but it chips away at the focus, at the priorities, at that sort of thing. And in that bigger picture, I see it as a good thing. Right, and the, something the ANC is, is going to be uh, under attack from both sort of more centrist opposition parties of which not only is there, you know, relatively good political party like the DA, but there's also lots of other new parties on offer. And are also going to have to fend off a new attack from that sort of far left, um, from their more traditional voters, which I think for them is going to be a very difficult mountain to summit. Um, it's because they're going to be pulled in all directions. Sorry, Herman. You were and, yes, and, and, and adding to that, we, I, if I were the IFP, I would also be somewhat nervous. Um, the, the IFP, I mean, Zuma over the weekend, I think, announced or indicated that he is interested in returning to political leadership at a church. So for many years now at the IRR, we have been discussing this scope for, uh, you know, a black conservatism in, in South Africa. There's a real risk that the IFP would be, at least in KwaZulu-Natal, where they get 90% of their votes, would be the natural vehicle for um, people who voted ANC for socioeconomic benefit that we saw around, you know, 2000 to 2007. And that the IFP's resurrection was built on those previously that the, in the 90s, these were IFP voters who then became ANC voters. And the IFP might have been banking on those voters returning to the IFP in the upcoming election. If those voters have another option on the ballot, that might harm the IFP's ability to reconsolidate the black conservative vote, especially in KwaZulu-Natal. So I'd be nervous if I were the EFF, as Chris says, because, you know, these the the it, it might backfire um on 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 them i'd be nervous if i were the anc because there's another ingredient in the mix and i'd be nervous if i were the ifp because i might be losing my socially conservative uh vote that i've been counting on returning
I think I think that that last point is pretty is pretty solid, um, and you can see how Zuma is actually emphasizing a lot of those things and stuff stuff he's been talking about for a while now. He's saying things like, uh, you know, criminals have too many rights. Um, he would know, but beyond that, there's there's a sort of uh, as you say, he's, you know, he's talking about churches. He's like saying we must bring God into things. We must go back to uh, dealing with problems simply. We must get it. It, it appeals very much, I think, to that kind of populist conservative um, mindset, which is quite widespread in South Africa um, and is in many ways not, I think, fully tapped into. The ANC has managed to win a lot of those votes for a long time, but I think it's sort of far left policy uh, offering is actually not really that appealing to a lot of those people. Um, okay, let us move on to... The next topic, uh, we're going to be talking about another important set of elections that was the recently held um, on the 13th of January, Taiwan elections. So Taiwan is, of course, uh, one of the most important countries in the world. I think it's got the 20th biggest economy in the world, something like that. Um, it's also one of the world's major flashpoints for potential conflict between the United States and China. China cl claims that the island is part of its territory. Taiwan says that it is independent, and this has been the case since 1947, pretty much. Um, okay, so the election, there are there were three main parties, the Taiwan People's Party, which is a relatively new party that is quite populist, the Kuomintang, or the KMT, uh, which are the Chinese Nationalist Party, the old ruling party of Taiwan, and they are traditionally more friendly to China, but it is worth noting that no political party in China in, in Taiwan actually supports unification with China, or at least none of the major ones do. And then there is the current ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party, the sort of a center-left party. Um, they, uh, in accordance with po uh, what the polling suggested would happen, won the presidential election. Um, they did lose votes uh, to the to the newcomers, and they didn't have as strong as a showing as last time. But this means that Taiwan's president is going to remain in the hands of someone who is much more anti-China. The legislative elections were a little bit more complicated, uh, with the DPP um, losing a number of seats. I think they lost ten after uh, they've they've uh, they've gone now beyond below having a majority, um, and the KMT is now the biggest party. I think having one more seat than the DPP. This does mean, however, that there's going to have to be a coalition government. There are only three parties in the uh, Taiwanese parliament because they have a, quite a high threshold, I think, of about 5%, and a mixed-member constituency system, but that's not particularly important. Chris, uh, what do you make of this? Um, I suspect that China is not going to be too pleased with this result. Uh, I know that uh, the Chinese government is traditionally much more hostile towards Taiwan whenever the DPP is in power in the presidency, um, and uh, this is not a great result then. Yeah, and in the context of China's slowing economic growth and prospects for really resolving their property, not a crisis as yet, but issues around pumping way too much liquidity into property, also around just depressed consumer spending, consumer activity, consumer demand, that sort of thing places more pressure on the central government to do something, to act, to look in charge, to take charge of the of sort of the global situation and lead sort of the glorious China as they've tried to portray at least for the last five years with President Xi Jinping uh, implementing wide scale reforms in his view, also purging a lot of the government apparatus, uh, the military, all sorts of other 
avenues of the state from those that are deemed not loyal enough uh, to the party. All of that kind of thing contributes to maybe unrest, uncertainty, and I think heightens the possibility of at least clearer conflict between China and Taiwan. Maybe China wouldn't want to prompt it themselves, maybe through the form of a naval blockade, that kind of pressure, that kind of thing, instead of trying to invade directly. So, I yeah, I don't want to say I foresee a ramping up of tensions based on this election result, but given the result, Taiwan will continue, I think, with this relatively prickly stance that they have maintained. So not just kowtowing, um, also not necessarily oh, exclusively moving closer to the West, but building up their own capacities where they could resist and make invasion as difficult as possible, where you make it as difficult as possible for your bigger neighbor to swallow you as, as your resources will allow, as is the case with Ukraine, how they have managed. Um, and the longer that conflict drags on, the less I think China's appetite for a direct invasion of um, of Taiwan. So apologies, my camera has just gone out, but I'm still here. Um, so Herman, uh, just your kind of thoughts on this. It does seem, um, one of the kind of interesting things about Taiwan is the fact that the center-right party, the KMT, is more friendly towards China and the center-left party is more hostile to them, which is actually a reversal of how it is in most countries in the world. Um, but uh, I think this also, to a certain degree, you know, demonstrates the limits of China's ability to really kind of influence Taiwan. Um, the fact that even though the DPP has definitely made mistakes, I think, that are, that are reflected in their diminished vote share, uh, they were still able to win this election because I think probably at the end of the day, a lot of Taiwanese people didn't want to uh, succumb to bullying from China. What, what do you make of all this? My my understanding of of Taiwanese politics, I won't sort of put up as as world beating, but what does interest me is the fact that the executive. Um, military command lies with the president. Um, and if we take within the context of the last few years, especially the AUKUS agreement with Australia, the UK and America, the question then becomes almost what infrastructure is available to deploy in the Taiwan Strait for deterrence? Because uh, China, any, any in, in, in invasion by China would have to happen across the Taiwan Strait. Um, it will have to be amphibious. So the question then becomes, if the military resources are there to make such a crossing difficult, whatever other policies there might be with uh, you know, the legislature in command of a more uh, pro-China party, it becomes a question of whether foreign relations can be managed in such a way to secure the resources to uh, uh, weaponize or defend the Taiwan Strait, and also whether the military is under the command uh, of someone who wants to uh, in, in ensure the, the strait is, is, is infrastructured in such a way to be a deterrent. So the finer politics of trade I don't think matters so much here in terms of what the legislature might decide. For me, it is very, very interesting that foreign relations and commander-in-chief duties rest with the president, and that has been won by a relatively anti-China stance. 
Um, so I'd be nervous if I were the Chinese because the American naval technology, sophisticated sea mines that can be, you know, uh, plunged at the ocean depth and then brought up um, to deter any, any uh, um, um, what's it, um, amphibian and invasion, is that the correct word? Um, is is something that the president has control over. So that's what I would be looking out for. Okay, Chris, any final thoughts on this before we move on? I need to add, uh, it's sort of, the IMF, they published a paper earlier this year coining the phrase geo-economic uncertainty and this idea of not just countries that are geographically distant from each other, but that geo-economic distance. So this kind of thing to me in 2024 ratchets up the potential at least for various tensions between countries and the big takeaway is the negative impact on developing and emerging markets like south africa if that global environment has more tension it means lower investment lower opportunities for investment so how do we set ourselves apart in that regard you know once more the challenge there for south africa no definitely um i've seen some research the number usually thrown about if there was actually a, a conflict between china taiwan and the united states uh, it would reduce the world's GDP by something like 10% in the first year, which is, let's just say that that would not be good for the South African economy, um, to put it mildly. But anyway, okay, uh, so we've... we've Nick, yeah. just on that, the tragic thing is that it, it also brings opportunity. Um, the the, the four, four centers of labor and where production might have to shift to and resource enrichment. So right. it's it, the real tragedy is that if such a calamity or if the, there were a Taiwanese military development within the next 10 years, it would be a net negative, I think, for countries like South Africa, because we wouldn't have had the ability to capitalize on especially changes in global supply chains, on which Chris is, of course, an expert and recently wrote a quite brilliant piece about the Red Sea. Right, exactly. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why South Africa actually has quite a lot of advantages, because we're so far away from many of the conflict zones in the world, that if we got some of our policies right, we'd be in a position to take advantage um, of, of difficulties, shall we say, in other parts of the world. Uh, okay, so we've gone a bit long, so I think we're going to be quite short on this one. Um, today is the first primary or caucus, technically, in uh, the United States presidential election, where the two major parties are going to choose their candidates. The Democrats are complicated. They've shifted their calendar around. South Carolina is going first, unlike usual. So we're not really going to talk about those. Um, but the Republican Party is having its nominating contest. And it looks like Donald Trump is pretty far ahead of the competition. Um, he's polling regularly in Iowa between sort of 48% at the low end and 55 at the high end. Um, most of his competition is very far behind him. He's only really got two major opponents at this stage, those being Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, although Nikki Haley has been going up in support for the last couple of weeks, months, uh, whereas Ron DeSantis seems to have been declining. So uh, very briefly, Herman, without, uh, without uh, elaborating too much, um, when we get the results, probably Trump victorious in this first primary? Um, probably Trump victorious, getting the most votes. The key will be whether he crosses the 50% mark or not. 
if he gets more than 50% of the votes in Iowa and he gets more than 50% of the votes in New Hampshire, we're looking at a pretty, I think, straightforward cruise to a Trump nomination. If he dips below 50% in Iowa, which would be highly unlikely but not impossible, and Nikki Haley comes within striking distance of him in New Hampshire, then the ball game changes. But as things are, I'd say 90% chance of a Trump uh, nomination from the Republican Party. That falls perhaps to 70% if he doesn't get above 50% in Iowa. Yeah, I think I'm I'm pretty close on that one as well. Um, Chris, do you agree, disagree? What do you think? No, I'm in agreement there. I, I don't I don't see it. That doesn't mean it won't happen, but I just I don't see it. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, the the non-Trump candidates have a very tough battle to fight at this point. Um, okay, so that's our caucuses. Obviously, we'll we'll get the results of that. I'm not sure if they'll be fully out by tomorrow, but we'll we'll at least have a sense of how things are going tomorrow. Um, and uh, so for our last just topic today, we're just going to talk very briefly about the trouble in the Red Sea. So the Red Sea is that little bit of uh, sea between um, Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. And at the very tip, sort of where that joins into the Indian Ocean, there's the country called Yemen. Uh, and Yemen has been in a civil war for many years now. One faction in that civil war is a group who call themselves Ansar Allah, but they are generally referred to by the media as the Houthis. And the Houthis have been attacking shipping um, from a number of countries um, uh, going through that Red Sea Channel. That Red Sea Channel is extremely important. It's one of the biggest, if not the most important shipping lanes in the world. And um, the Houthis say they have been doing this to punish Israel and its allies for their uh, um, uh, military actions in Gaza. Um, the United States and the UK responded to this after a couple of weeks of the Houthis doing this with some major uh, aerial attacks. In the space of one night, they carried out about 100 um, strikes, which seem to have done significant but not crippling damage to the Houthi forces. And so it remains to be seen where this struggle is going to go. Chris, what do you make of all this? So if you add to this the lower um, movement of ships through the Panama Canal uh, because of drought and also then potential conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia around issues in Somaliland, around the Horn of Africa, you've got more disruptions to global trade than just the Suez Canal, which accounts for about 12% of global container traffic. It's interesting that most of the attacks have been directed on container ships and oil and gas um, ships have been largely left alone. What that tells you about um, the Houthis being backed by Iran, you know, you can reach your own conclusions around global oil supply. But overall, we, we see, as we, just as we thought after COVID, government lockdowns, supply chain complexity and issues coming down, we've got a spike now again. It's not nearly to the levels that it was in 2020, but if it sustains, we've again, again got higher costs. Um, South Africa that is so exposed to imported inflation with things like um, the oil price potentially going up, that sort of thing then we've got those issues to deal with. And where we hope the Reserve Bank was going to start cutting rates this year, this puts a little bit of a pause on that idea. So that's sort of the implications for South Africa. Uh, it's a bit of a, uh, I guess, a negative point against the US, not just the US, but their sort of naval task force that they've tried to put together to get a handle on this, um, that it's been almost a month now where they haven't 
that's a factor in doubt of the issue, maybe not wanting to lead to direct conflict with Iran. Uh, but we haven't yet seen countries alongside the US deal with this issue, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who ostensibly talk about wanting stability for economic growth and investment in the Middle East, but then don't put the money where the mouth is in terms of uh, military hardware and treasure. So what has been quite interesting as well, the strikes were only carried out, I believe, by the US and UK with a little bit of help from Bahrain, which does which is an ally of Saudi. So maybe that's about as far as the Saudis are willing to go. Um, the sort of defending of ships from boarding by the Houthis and also um, uh, 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 anti-ship uh, operations, anti-ship missile operations, um, have been joined by a larger number of countries, including, I believe, India. So this is another sign that India is growing a little bit closer, I think, to Western countries and that it was getting involved here in defending some shipping uh, containing uh, container ships being boarded. Um, but Herman, just on that point we made in the last one, uh, this trouble in the Red Sea has directed a lot of container ships that want to go to Europe or America from Asia around South Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope. And yet our ports are a mess. And so we really haven't been able to take much advantage of it. Yeah, over December, I, I sort of kept an eye on the horizon um, to see the shipping go past. In the past, where you would see ships go and you would be able to track their point of origin and destination and find some South African uh, sort of uh, touch point of, of, of port activity there, either Durban or Port Elizabeth or, or Cape Town, that has decreased significantly. So I would urge anyone who who's interested in this to go and read Chris's most recent piece on this about how our, our inability um, to manage our ports sufficiently will cost us economic opportunity and how economic opportunity can flow from global crises if we get our own house in order. Definitely. Okay, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found the show interesting and we will be back tomorrow with the Daily Friend Wrap. Cheers, everyone. Mm -hmm.